This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. Lucky you. Hello and welcome back to Big Mood, Little Mood with Danny Lavery. I am Danny Lavery and with me in the studio this week is a guest I'm very excited about, Mara Wilson, a writer and actor living in Los Angeles with several very noisy cats. Uh, Mara, <laughs> welcome to the show. How you doing? Good, good. Thank you so much for having me. And yes, the cats have been causing chaos around the house just as I sit down to record, which uh, which happens. It's beautiful. The only bit of chaos that I ran into uh, before I recorded was... Um, I had one of those great occasional moments that one gets when one has to uh, like check into hotels yeah. or use TSA and your legal name doesn't match up with your whole deal or you have to say like, because oh. hotels, I feel like I've gotten more finicky about that over the last few years where I've, I've oftentimes had like the name on my credit card and the name on my ID doesn't match up. And it used to be, you could just explain and they'd be like, got it. And sometimes now they're like, I don't know what to tell you. You got to have one name. They, it's very, one thing that I have a problem with almost every time I fly for a a job is uh, they will ask me for my credit card and I will be like, okay, but I, I didn't, or or, or not when I fly, but when I, when I get into a, I get into a a hotel, they'll ask me for my credit card and I'll be like, okay, but I didn't book the room. Mm -hmm. If I were booking my own hotel room, I would not book a hotel room as nice as this. (laughs) I'm, I'm fine with just like anywhere that like has a, has a bed and they wash the sheets. Uh, and, and they're like, and they're like, okay, but you have to put this down. And so multiple times I have been charged for the room, even though people were like, oh no, the room is, the room is, you know, we're, we're paying for the room. We're doing this for you. And so I, I kind of don't know. And I remember one time I told somebody, like I told, I told someone who was working in London, I was like, oh, uh, I, I didn't book the room. I'm sorry. The organization did. And she didn't quite understand. And she said, oh, your mom booked the room for you. <laughs> That's the only other thing she could think of was just Yeah, moms. and I don't know if, like, maybe I was wearing a backpack and I looked younger or something, but, like, I think she was, like, new to working there. And and she, like, looked at me and my publicist and maybe thought we were sisters or something and thought we were, like, teen backpackers or something. Who's, Love it. Whose mom had booked a fancy hotel for them. Like, the story that she created in her head, I was like, wow, this is, like, this is way more interesting. <laughs> yeah. So it was it was neither like a hotel clerk nor TSA, but it was something along those lines. And we'd had a couple of like perfectly pleasant, fun interactions. Yeah. I thought I had done the job of explaining like, I'm booking with this name. I go by this name. Thanks for bearing with me. And like, we'd had the nice interactions. And then he had this total like well-intended meltdown, which is I walked past him and he started <laughs> just like flailing his arms. He's like, hang on, hang on. I need to, I what do I, what do I, what, mm, what, what what do I do? With, what do I call you? Like it was, and I, I knew I was like, I know you're flailing. I know your question has something to do with like, what's the deal with your many names or like you have a beard now, but I, I didn't know exactly what it was. So there was no way that I could like speed it up. I just had to watch him like have a meltdown in real time of just like, what's, what's going on? Am I doing something wrong? And I was just like, you're fine, man. But this is, this is a true, this is a true capital two, two capital M's Midwestern moment. I would say, mm-hmm. yeah, the, the, uh, yeah. I mean, I, I would maybe be slightly more inclined to call it like 
you've changed your face, but not yet your name legally on all fronts <laughs> kind of a moment. Because it does happen in other yeah, locations. Well, well just, but- the, just the like, what do I call you? What do I do? And and, and the desperation to, to not be wrong. Although, I mean, you would think in Minneapolis, like... And having come after a series of really pleasant, innocuous interactions. Yeah, I think yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah. I think, I think they're just so afraid of being wrong. And so afraid of being of of like yeah, there's there's so much of that Minneapolis like niceness. Although like like half the trans people I know live in Minneapolis. Yeah, I, I want to be like, <laughs> man, I promise you, I'm gonna help you out. Like, I want good things for you. I want to help you, uh, but you do have to ask me some kind of a question because I can't just like watch you babble and then say something like, yeah, I'm a I'm a I'm a I'm a trans person. How can I help you with that? There's a lot of I mean, and I know that like in the past I've done this. There's that thing where somebody makes a mistake or like somebody and then somebody or or says something that could potentially make you feel bad or something. And then they apologize so much for it and, and are so far gone and are so obsessed about it that you kind of end up comforting them. Oh yeah. That happens a lot. I, and I know that like, that's something that like I would do as a teenager where I, where I'd be like, oh my God, I suck. I'm terrible. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I, I suck. I'm the worst. I hate everything. I'm so sorry. And then everybody would, you know, they would come back and they would end up being the one even though I was the one who messed up instead of just being like, oh, I messed up. I'm sorry. I don't quite understand this. And and just sort of owning the fact that sometimes you mess up and you don't understand things and you need to learn. What was funny was he hadn't even messed up. Like he'd been calling me Daniel <laughs> as I had asked him to. We had very pleasant interactions. He gave me directions uh, at one point. Um, so it's just like, you're not even, you're not even doing anything wrong yet, man. But um, yeah, yeah, I, it is, uh, there are so many different ways that a human being can flail. Um, and I think it, <laughs> in that way, being trans and, and having become prominent in one's chosen field as a child are probably not too dissimilar. Yeah, probably. I mean, a lot of people kind of, kind of, I mean, in some ways, yes, very different. But I, I think a lot of times people kind of don't know how to approach my past or talk about it. I remember in in college, people would be like, would be would, would bring it up and then they would be like, oh my God, I'm so sorry, Mara. Mm-hmm. And I was like, no, it, it, it happened. It wasn't, you know... A, entirely like a bad thing. It, it, it's okay. But also, yeah, people, I remember being at a, a at a store once and, uh, and, and people like grabbing like this girl finding, looking at my credit card and like flipping out. And she turned to the woman next to her and was like, do you know who she is? Do you know who she is? <laughs> and she just kept saying that over and over again. And I was just like, you're holding on to my card. Like can I have really, back, really please? like, can I please have my card back? And the the person next to her was like, no, I don't know who she is. Can you please just complete the transaction? And I don't know if maybe like she was a trainee or something. And she's like, but do you know who she is? And finally her coworker says, okay, fine. I know who she is. I was just trying to say that I didn't. So you would calm down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is very resonant with the trans experience, at least some of the yeah. time. Yeah, and it's 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 also just like the the... One thing I get a lot of is like, like I remember doing a show and I actually wrote about this in my book where... Uh, I was booked on this guy's show. I didn't know who he was. He was a comedian, I guess. And like, and uh, he he had me on his show and he came up to me and he was just like, oh yeah, my my intern, like really, first of all, what comedy show has an intern, you know, who you're probably not paying. And he comes up to me and he's just like, what it was like, he's like, hey, my intern really loves your work. And I was like, oh, thanks. That's really nice. You know, he's like, he's like, my intern really loves your mo- the movies you did as a kid. You know, she's like such a huge fan of yours. And I was like, oh, thank you. That's very nice. And, and, uh, and then he goes, yeah, well, personally, I don't get it. Wow. I was like, you don't get what? Like, you don't get like being a fan of mine or, or, or my stuff or like still being, and, and what a weird thing to say right before you have me on your show. Right. 
Right. No, none, you none know? of that was like solicited by you in any way either. It was just like, I've decided to share this information with you on someone else's behalf. And then just as an added little like side of hotcakes that you get for free with your Grand Slam breakfast. Yeah. I don't care. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I don't, I don't care. And, and I was just like, and this was like a grown man. This wasn't somebody who was like, you know, he, he was, he was like 10 years older than me. And, you know, I'm, I'm in my twenties and he's just like, yeah, I don't get it. I don't, I don't get, and I'm like, oh, well, yeah, you know, I don't, (laughs) I don't spend all my time thinking about, you know, what are other child actors up to? I guess it's a little weird. And he's like, yeah, it totally is. Exactly. I'm so glad you agree that your life was pointless. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, uh, and uh, and I did his show, and I watched his set, and uh, his set was terrible, and I totally bombed. Uh, but then I never saw him again, and he probably has again, probably has no idea who I am, doesn't doesn't care, and I'm just kind of like, okay, well, as long as we both agree that we have no bearing on each other's lives, yeah. then uh, then it's fine. Yeah, yeah, no, I think I think people with like oddly unsolicited opinions about your experience as a child is something that is common to both child actors and trans people, and um, you know. <laughs> Just as always, here's an invitation to to let some of that go, strangers. Yeah, exactly. And uh, and and you know, let me speculate on your family. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. Oh, let me stop you right there. You don't have to speculate. Yeah, it, I mean, exactly. That's the thing. That's the thing. I know we've talked a little bit about mean grandmothers. Uh, oh yeah. I I definitely I definitely had one of those. I want to get to that. I do want to get through our first. We do. We should question, get through our question. But then yes. we're going to go straight into mean grandmothers. Oh um, yeah. Because, oh, yeah. you know, such an uh, such an under-discussed topic. Um, we devote <laughs> yes, so much exactly. time on the show to bad dads and mean moms, but um, to lousy grandmothers, not enough. All right, we'll move on. I will take our next letter. The subject is always in hiding. I have depression. I also have a high pressure, high public visibility, extremely interesting job that I become basically incapable of doing at intervals roughly three to eight weeks apart. So far, I have managed to cover for the occasional missed deadline slash inability to get out of bed and off Twitter by relying on a combination of vague half-truths, quote, I'm unwell, and outright lies, quote, I had a family emergency. Sooner or later, people will notice this pattern, but they seem not to have yet. All my job appraisals so far have been glowing. Should I disclose my depression to my employers? In theory, they have a duty to accommodate me, and I think I could minimize the damage if they knew, for example, by moving some of my work around and planning my deadlines in ways that allow for nervous breakdown breaks. In practice, I think any disclosure will come with big costs that could lead to my ultimately being eased out of here. It's a culture that is superficially inclusive and welcoming, but ultimately hyper-competitive and intolerant of weakness. I start another bout of yet another kind of therapy next week. Should I hang tight in the hopes of getting better before I'm eventually found out or disclose and hope for the best? I say all this, I I had a quick answer, and then I realized this letter's got an S in it where there would normally be a Z if we were in the United States, which leads me to believe this person is writing to us from either the UK or some former Commonwealth nation, in which case I no longer feel especially confident about saying, yes, the ADA will at least uh, provide you with the ability to you know, sue them if they do fire you. So that takes the wind out of my sails a little bit. But I do still want to put in a plug for disclosing, um, not because I want to assume that everything is going to go great and your supervisor and HR will just say, fantastic, let us know what you need and we'll never discuss this ever again. But because you say, letter writer, that 
it's getting harder to make up for some of these absences and that you are, it sounds like pretty anxious that someone's going to at some point say, why did you miss this deadline? And so I think the odds that this is going to come up one way or the other is pretty high. And the benefit of doing it this way, you you seem convinced you have some sort of workplace protection. So whether or not that's the ADA, um, you, hopefully you can familiarize yourself with whatever your country's laws are on um, protecting employees with diagnosed depression. At least if you disclose first, you've got the paper trail, um, you've got the I disclosed, I did my due diligence, um, and you will have a record you can point to if they do try to ease you out and you decide to take legal action. I, I mean, I, I personally would disclose, and and I have disclosed before at, at previous jobs. I have said, you know, just so you know, there is this. I, I do think that uh, they do seem to be worrying themselves about a, lo- a lot about somebody's going to notice, somebody's going to notice, somebody's going to notice. That seems There seems to be a lot of anxiety there. And I mean, it is possible that people won't notice. But the thing is, depression is very common. <laughs> a lot of people have depression, and a lot of people will be understanding. And I do know, I mean... From the time I've spent in the UK and Commonwealth countries and and Canada, this is a thing that people are talking about more. And they are, I've, I've done events in the UK for this, and I've I've been to Australia, I've been to Canada, and I know New Zealand is doing this too. There is a lot of talk about mental health these days, and a lot of talk about people working with mental health, and especially because I think older generations there in particular did not talk about it. So the push is kind of for for younger people to talk about it as well, uh, but but yeah, I, I, I there's and so I can't imagine that there wouldn't be laws on the books, much like the ADAs, and yes, and depression is also depression is extremely common. A lot of people have depression or will you know will have chronic depression or will have some period of depression in their life, and I think that it is much more seen as uh, a condition instead of just you know, an emotional issue as it once was in the past. So, I, I mean, I don't think that they have to disclose. And I, I don't think necessarily if if that would ultimately make them uncomfortable, but I would, I personally would. I think that it's a good idea too. I, yeah, I think as you say, it's it's not an obligation to disclose, but I think, you know, letter writer, all the risks are that you fear about disclosing, many of them are still present now. It's true that there's not the, potential stigma attached to the word depression. Um, but the issue of sometimes you miss deadlines, sometimes you're not able to get out of bed, sometimes you're not able to do your work. Um, that's going on right now. And so you say, you know, this is a superficially inclusive, but pretty competitive and intolerant of weakness work culture, which would suggest to me that if it's going to be a problem, it's going to be a problem whether you di- disclose or not. It's going to be a problem because someone's yeah. going to say, I noticed you just missed another deadline. That's your fifth this year allow me to be, you know, hyper intolerant of your weakness and ease you out. So that problem still exists, but in that scenario, you have fewer legal protections. Um, and so that's why I think disclosing, again, at, at your own discretion, check in with your doctor first, uh, find out how little you can say, like what's the bare minimum you have to say in order to get those legal resources you need and then shut it down. Yeah, you don't need to go into detail. No, You don't need to all. go into not detail. And I have known people who who have gone into t- detail and because of that been been told like, well, are you a threat to yourself? Are you this or that? Are you, you know, and, uh, but yeah, you just need to tell them, <laughs> you just need to tell them the bare minimum. And, and I mean, Danny, I think you're right because I also think that taking advantage of somebody with a, with a serious condition 
that's going to be frowned upon in in any workplace, even like a competitive workplace. That's that's going to be frowned upon. That's that's you know it, it's not all right to do that. And I, I understand that it still happens. Um, I I hope you don't get very much of it, letter writer. And if they do start asking prying questions afterwards, uh, you know I hope you can really just like stay firm and say something like, I have a great treatment plan and I'm seeing medical professionals for this. Um, I just need you to know as much as it will affect my work schedule beyond that, I'm handling it. And you say that you're starting yet another form of therapy. You know, different forms of therapy work better for different people. I know that CBT works for some people very well and it does not for others. I know uh, there's, there's different kinds. Medications work very well for some people and not for others. Some kinds of medications work well for people and some other, and some don't, uh, you know, a lot of people do really well on dialectical behavioral therapy. A lot of people do well, you know, with some sort of combination of, you know, of, of psychotherapy, of CBT, of DBT, of psychodynamics, of, of different things. Uh, there's all kinds of, you know, there's EMDR now, there's there's like magnets that people are doing for like OCD, there's things like that. There are so many different kinds of therapy out there. And and so there are different ways that uh, that you can be helped. So you don't need to feel bad about starting yet another form of therapy because not everything works. And some people, it's very, some people are more resistant to medications. Some people don't, don't, uh, there's, there's, and there's so many emerging therapies right now. I just talked to a friend of mine who's a neuroscientist who was talking about how like isolation tanks can help and how different, uh, you know, they can help some people and different and things make can other help people have with, panic like, attacks. I, I love them. I love them. But yes, I also know people who have been in them and been like, this is yeah. not for me. Uh, I'm claustrophobic, but I know, but I do well in them. But yeah, I've had other people who are just like, I was just worried about getting water in my ear the whole time, yeah. or I felt seasick. There's different kinds of therapy. You know, some people, some people microdose things. Some people do. Yeah. It's all, it's all different kinds of therapy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I think that that sort of follow-up question of, should I hang tight in the hopes of getting better? You know, Mm. obviously letter writer, my hope is that you find whatever combination of treatments are the most useful for you. Um, I I would want you to feel maximally, you know, well taken care of, well supported with the most possible like bouts of joy and peacefulness, contentedness, and liking your life. Um, I don't know how likely that is. I don't know how soon around the corner that might be. I don't know that that's going to last forever. So while I really, really do hope that you get useful support, um, I cannot, I, I think it would be a mistake to think this new therapy means that within the next three to eight weeks, I will be so well-supported that I will never miss a deadline again and this will never come up again. I think that would be a recipe for beating yourself up when that doesn't happen and feeling like, God, nothing helps. I did it again. I'm the worst. And I think a a better choice would be to disclose, keep a record. You know, the accommodations that you describe sound very reasonable. And it frankly already sounds like there's room for that at your workplace as it's set up now, it's just going to make a big difference to bring it up before it's become a problem for anyone else but you. Also, I, I mean, I, I, yeah, I think you're right about, you know, ho- hoping that it, it gets better. I mean, the deal with mental health usually is that you aren't just all of a sudden one day cured. That's not the way that it usually works. Usually it's much more about figuring out, finding a way to live your life where you can deal with with symptoms and you can deal with these things and you can deal with triggers and you can deal with these kinds of things. It's not so much it just going away on its own, but kind of learning how to manage it and learning how to deal with it. Uh, that I think is, is much more, 
it doesn't all disappear. I mean, some some illnesses do seem to kind of come and go, but with mental health, I think it it is just about it, it gets better in a way that you can you find ways to deal with it and you find ways to live with it and you find ways to ameliorate things. And the thing is, a lot of companies that like to be superficially <laughs> supportive, you can call them on it. <laughs> That's the thing. If you've got the track record of having disclosed and you know your legal rights, um, yes. you will at least be able to hold their feet to the fire if they exactly. don't support your legal rights. Yes. So do your do your research and say, look, and, and that's the thing. And they will be worried about how they will come across. Mm-hmm. They they will be worried about. They will be superficially, you know, that I think is is something they can be, you know, actually, actually, yeah, ask them about it. Like, you know, press them on it because that is something that they have a vested interest in being and in, and in appearing. So yeah, definitely, as Danny says, hold their feet to their fire. The other thing that I want to flag, just because I wasn't quite sure what they meant by I can't get out of bed or off Twitter, it wasn't super clear to me if they meant I can't stop scrolling through Twitter or it, that it also includes like posting on Twitter. Um, letter writer, I don't know if your job involves the use of social media. I don't know if your job is aware of this particular social media account. I don't know if you're posting on your days off. So I don't want to speculate too hard there. I will just say another reason that it might be helpful to disclose um, and to also potentially consider putting your social media on private is if this is not an account you have to use for work, um, you know, it is not unheard of for companies to try to monitor their employees uh, after like non-work related social media, especially Mm -hmm. if they have disclosed a mental health diagnosis. And those accounts have sometimes been used against people, um, like actually in terms of getting like paid time off. Um, I I know someone who petitioned for medical leave and who then received a denial of claim by their insurance through their employer, which was, you were smiling in a picture on Instagram last month. You can't be depressed. (laughs) Um, and I don't want to get too paranoid, but I do just want to say letter writer, if you are using social media on those days off, um, even if it's not like round the clock, it's possible that if your employer ever found out, they might try to penalize you for it. And so be careful, be paranoid and consider getting a a locked alt account. And, um, you know, I, I don't want to say assume your company will find your social media and try to use it against you, but you know, you say it's a hyper-competitive, intolerant industry. Go ahead and assume that they're going to try to use it against you if they can. So make it hard yeah. for them too. Yeah, definitely. Sorry, that, that makes me feel very paranoid, but it, it happens. I know someone last week who was fired yeah. for their social media account after hours and it's just, you, it, you know. It definitely happens. I mean, I know that there are times where I'm like, I should probably go back and look over some things and think about it. And, you know, I, I that that definitely it definitely happens. I mean, I find myself spending less time on Twitter these days because it just depresses me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, and so it's mostly like, you know, there are other things that I could be doing. And so now, you know, I get it. I go on there every couple of days and I, I promote something and, you know, maybe I'll make a silly joke, but I don't find it fun or entertaining or informative anymore. So it's just, and I wonder, I'm like, was it ever those things? And yes, it was. I think at one point in my life, it was those things. Yeah. It was a good place to make connections and meet people. And I love the people I've met through it. But I do notice that it makes me feel more depressed and and more overwhelmed. Yeah, I, I do. I was wondering, because I know that you had mentioned a while back that you've been hoping someday to find that holy grail, which is a, a girlfriend who's not into true crime podcasts. <laughs> and I was wondering if if you'd had any luck either on Twitter uh. or elsewhere. 
I mean, I, I'm not really into meeting people over the internet anymore. I, I, I have met- say, I don't want to meet anyone. Like I don't want her no, to be no, into no. true crime I, and I don't want to know her. And I don't want to know her. No, no. I, you know, I've tried, I've tried like dating apps, but uh, I I feel like because of my own history and my own trust issues and, you know, it's funny because I used to be really reluctant to discuss my trust issues, but uh, then I met other child actors and they all had severe trust issues. So I I think that that is something, you know, when you, when you grow up not knowing why people like you or knowing that people only like you because of your smile and because of your cuteness or because of a character you played and not actually the person that you are, you're going to have some trust issues. Mm -hmm. So like doing the dating app thing, I was just like, I don't get a sense of who these people are. I, I just don't. And, and also, I mean, I think it's easier in LA because in LA, everybody's sort of tangentially related to the industry. But I do know that in the past, some people have been like, they're like, look, you're not a celebrity. You're not like a major celebrity, but you're enough of a celebrity that I feel a little uncomfortable with the pressure that this is going to put on the relationship. That has happened to me. Uh, but I'm not going to do Raya <laughs> uh, because that that offends my, uh, my you know, anti-elitist sensibilities, I think. Uh-huh. And, and also just I need to meet people in person. I need to see how I feel about them. But yeah, there is this sort of thing about like, I don't know, true crime is such a thing. And it's, it's such a... And the thing is like, I... Like, I listen to podcasts about cults all the time, uh, but also in some ways I feel like some members of my family and such, and, and, and some of the experiences that I had growing up, I feel like were a little culty. So in some ways it's kind of like, oh yeah, this this actually feels kind of familiar to listen to. Mm-hmm. But I, I think that, uh, yeah, I I don't, and astrology, oh my God, the astrology I like thing. that now we're just getting into a list of like things you don't want in a girlfriend. I was really yeah, just exactly. thinking about true crime, but now we're just talking about like, ladies, if you're interested in this, do not call Mara. I don't, well, I mean, I don't care. I don't care very much about that, but you know, but yeah, the true crime, the true crime thing I think is just very, I, I don't like talking about grisly murders. I think that that, that kind of bothers me. That kind of upsets me. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but I do think that a lot of people are interested in that. And a lot of people are, are, and, and I wonder why exactly, but I think that it's, and I have kind of a couple of ideas. I think, I mean, for me, I think everything kind of goes back to control and it's this idea of like, maybe if I do this, I won't get murdered. I won't get hurt. I won't get this, but also it's, um, and also it's, it's, it's sort of trying to understand people whose minds we do not understand. Mm-hmm. And also I think there's the idea of, of wanting to solve crimes and wanting to, you know, there's, there's sort of a puzzle aspect of it that we like as well. And also beating people like, you know, cops and detectives who in a lot of cases are useless or worse, uh, at their own game. So I think that that's, that's a lot of things, but I do wonder why particularly it is, it is something that, um, a lot of, you know, feminine, you know, LGBTQ people are, are particularly interested in. I, yeah, I don't know. I like the idea that like, there's a certain like continuum where like, if you're this masculine, you lose all in like, just alone, like, oh, I'm a little mask of center. So no true crime for me. Um, <laughs> hey, I got, a, I got a yeah. bow tie and, and I stopped listening to true crime. But yes, you know, as you say, it is rarely like we're doing this deep dive into like, uh, you know, securities fraud. It's usually, you know, the true crime is not just like all crime across the board. It's like yeah. splashy serial killer adjacent murder of usually young white women. Um, and so sometimes they're like, it's just as simple as a fascination with, you know, whiteness and specifically with the idea of a fragile white womanhood in need of defending, right. um, which is, you know, not a project that's necessarily the most worthwhile hobby. 
I mean, I know also on on like you're wrong about in places like that, there's this idea of they, they will talk about the idea of of how people will be like, how could he come from this nice white neighborhood? How could this guy have done this? You know, he, he grew up totally normal, you know, all, all of these ideas and being like, well, maybe what we have considered totally normal. I mean, the idea of the affluent or or middle class white suburb is that is an idea that is not very old. And I think a lot of you know, boomers in particularly probably took that idea for granted that this was the way that it was going to be forever. A lot of middle-class, well-off white boomers were just like, nope, this is the way that the world is. It is the way that the world should be. But that is not a way that most people live. And there were very positive things about it, but there were also very negative things about it. And it's it's the idea of they seem so normal, I think, is is one thing. The and And it's like, well, no, there wasn't. There were things about it that came out of this that made people... I think it's it's the banality of evil, really. I think that's something, and that's something that we don't think about as much. We don't think about, you know, so there's this idea of how could this person or how could this be lurking in our own backyard, that kind of thing. And I mean, I don't want to sound like I'm somebody who's who's talking about like one of those late 90s movies where, where it's just like the secrets behind the suburbs. Sure. But oh my God, there were some, like some producer found out about like, you know, what if, we, what if like the suburbs were actually kind of like, like gross and scummy and there were, and there were like all these secrets hiding underneath and somebody was just like, oh my gosh, we've got to do that. I mean, I feel like, you know, John Cheever was doing that. I feel like the Stepford Wives uh, franchise was doing yeah. that. Like we had that back in the sixties and seventies, which actually is a perfect segue into the question I asked you about earlier, which is talking about bad grandmas. Cause we're, we're, we're in spitting di- distance of, uh, of that generation. Um, so two questions. What makes for a really great bad grandma? Oh, um, I think that uh, a really great bad grandma does not know how to advocate for herself or won't advocate for herself. And because of that, she resorts to manipulation. And I think that that is a generational thing. And I think that that is a, you know, there's this sort of learned helplessness and I think that's also probably a trauma thing. I know in my family it definitely was. It was it was uh, you know you your your mother and grandmother escaped pogroms, and I also think it's seeing cruel and self serving behavior as necessary as survival traits. That's kind of the way that I see it in my family. In my family, it was well these helped us survive in the old country because it, it helped to be selfish. Mm-hmm. It helped to only care about your family no matter what. It helped to distrust everybody, to push other people away, to distance yourself because those are those are survival traits. But once you get to a place that is a little bit safer and a little bit calmer, be it an actual place or be it a mental state of mind, th- those things are not going to be useful anymore. And, and you are and you are still using them. And that is the way that your mother taught you to be like, never trust anybody and never ask for you what you want, but get it out of them and uh, manipulate them and complain to them. Yeah, I think what's great too is potentially with a bad grandmother, you've got the ability to wreak emotional havoc on two generations at once. Oh, yeah. So not only are you, you know, uh, making the day difficult for your grandchild, but then you can also like plant some sort of emotional puzzle in in the kid's mother or father's brain and then just watch them both kind of melt down in concert with one another. So it's it's really just about like a wider range. Yeah, it it is. It's it's more people that that you are doing. I I also think it's uh always seeing yourself, in some ways, seeing yourself as the child. I don't want to get too into my own personal experiences, but I know that I know that when we asked my grandmother how old she was, uh, which, you know, wasn't a polite question, but we were, you know, six, she would always say, I'm 12 or I'm 13. And it was kind of a joke. 
But she actually did act like oh, kind God. of a mean 12 or 13-year-old girl or, oh. or you know, or child would. And I think about her and I'm just like, wow, a lot of these are just like sort of childish mean girl tactics. The things that you did and the way that the attention needed to be on you. And yeah, and there are mean grandmothers in a lot of fiction, but they're usually in adult fiction. I remember growing up reading, you know, Judy Bloom and thinking, wow, she really loves her grandmother. Like, oh, wow, her grandma's the best. She gets to do fun things with her grandma and she gets to tell her secrets that she doesn't tell anybody else. And with mine, it was like, I don't want to tell grandma's secrets because she will use them against me at some point. And I think I remember finally writing about my grandmother in college and somebody reading it and saying, wow, this is like August Osage County. And I remember thinking, oh man, that could have been my Pulitzer. <laughs> all, you, all you had to do was write the play. Uh, exactly. That is, yeah. <laughs> that is remarkable. Sorry, yeah. Tracy Lutz. It's, um, I, I welcome, I invite more, more questions from anyone listening right now uh, who has a bad grandmother. I suspect one of the reasons that they are slightly under-discussed in addition to usually it's the parents who raise you, um, is there's a slightly more straightforward solution, which is usually just waited out. That's a little harder to pull <laughs> off with your own parents because usually it's just like, well, give it 10 years. I think that it is it is easier to separate from them because, you know, they, they aren't your parents. It's hard to separate from your parents. It's very hard. It's hard to separate from your siblings. Uh, and I think definitely in some cultures, the grandmother is seen as, as you know, the matriarch and the person that everybody, everything revolves around. And I think that that's really great, but I also think that it is a little bit easier, I think, to distance yourself from them. And yeah, and they aren't going to they aren't going to live forever. But but it is really difficult, and it because fe- it feels like they should be the one who is on your side. They should be the advocate for that. They should be the one that you can turn to and say, you know, are my parents, you know, like my parents are being like this, and they should understand. Uh, but sometimes they just don't. At the very least, you hope. They'll be a, a nice lady. And, uh, you know, what can you do when they're not but say, good luck, enjoy your whole deal? I Yeah, and I wonder a lot, like, how would this be different in a different culture that was more family-oriented and more extended family-oriented and and things like that? I mean, I suppose mine was in a way, but there also was sort of this very American thing of, you know, this is the nuclear family and this is, you know, we're we're separate. We're not all, you know, extended and we're not... I don't know, because I really like the idea. I, I love the idea, actually, of extended families living together and and taking care of each other and these things. But I also think that that isn't going to work in every family. I've seen how it works in my stepfamily, where my grandmother there was like the matriarch, and she was wonderful and caring and loving and supportive and accomplished and talented. And then I've seen, you know, in, in other parts of my family— um, where, where, uh, I mean, my dad's side of the family is wonderful too, but like my mother's side of the family, it was just kind of like, there was such competition. Yeah. I think that's another trademark of mean grandmothers is competition. Yeah. And treating everything as a threat and as a competition. It's interesting uh, of my two grandmothers, uh, neither of whom I I speak to, Mm -hmm. I wouldn't put either of them exactly in the mean category. You know, I think one of them is a, a difficult person to be around. She's the kind of person who if you get up to go to the bathroom, she'll hug you. Like she's just that (laughs) level of kind of nervous and uh, requiring constant feedback and interaction. And like, where are you going? What are you doing? What are you going to do? You brush your teeth? What are you going to brush your teeth for? Oh, do you like the toothpaste? Um, I got a new kind of toothpaste. Do you like it? It's green. Did you ever think about how toothpaste is green? Let me have a hug. Um, So not, not mean, challenging, but, but often, often quite warm. Um, and another grandmother who was uh, also quite warm, but um, also like both quite manipulative uh, and quite homophobic. 
I mean, they're, you know, they're, that's the mm-hmm. whole the whole gang, but like such that I remember, I remember this so vividly. I know the expression, I didn't have this on my 2021 bingo card or mm-hmm. my 2020 bingo card was, was quite cliched quite a while back. But I remember really having that actual thought, like just pop into my head at some point last year, during that sort of ongoing push that my wife and I had to make for uh, investigating my, my brother's work with children, particularly at my father's church. Uh, and at one point, my, my father's mother, that grandmother, had put out like a, a public call through her church's Facebook for prayers as they resisted demonic warfare. Uh, and something else that, uh, something along the lines of like, I, I had probably been possessed by the devil at this point. And I was just like, mm. man, I really did not have that one on my bingo card. Like, I'm sorry to use that expression, but I really like, I thought I knew this lady fairly well. And I never thought she was going to uh, say that I was possessed by the devil. This is a very, it was a very surreal moment. It was like, boy, you, you've really done something unusual in life when your grandmother, who has never said that about you says about you. And um, I, I don't know, I think about it a lot. We'll never get a chance to talk about it, but it would be sort of fascinating if like one day we could just sit down and be like, hello, you're my enemy. But let's let's talk about this just for pure like interest of discussing the dynamics at play. I've, I think that I'm very politically different than, and, and religiously different than my mother's family. And so I sometimes think that there's a lot of assumption that I, I stopped talking to them because they were, we did not share the same politics. Mm-hmm. But I mean, that might have been like a third of it, <laughs> you know, because the, their politics are are pretty extreme and their religion is pretty extreme. And you don't want to hang out with people who say, I think gay people should be stoned. But uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, Danny's raising his eyebrows. Yeah, no, stoned to death, not in the fun way. Yeah. Uh, and, and uh, you know, you, d- you don't want to be around people like that. But there are so many people who use that their own issues and and channel it into into uh, religiosity and and sort of scrupulosity and and politics and this very I'm I'm right you're wrong me against the world kind of idea and and you can see this with all kinds of politics really and it's channeled into this thing and so the politics aren't I want to help the world and perhaps I'm just misguided, or perhaps I think that this way would be better, or perhaps there's things that other people just don't understand yet. It is political and religious in a hateful way Mm -hmm. and in a way that harms people. Yeah. Sometimes grandmothers are just bad and it's great to, you know, ignore them for the rest of your life. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. (laughs) I, I, you, you are not, if you have a mean grandmother, don't feel bad about not talking to them. All right. Before I send you off into the afternoon, uh, I have a quick question from a a reader uh, who I'm just going to very quickly disappoint. So uh, Mm -hmm. I I hope you're you're happy to stick around for just like 45 seconds of um, lost expectations. But here's the question and here's my answer. I've listened to your podcast since 2016 and I've loved it. Thank you. In my head, I've always entertained this fantasy of being a guest on the show and using that opportunity to ask you a question that's been burning in my mind every time I log in to listen. With the change in format of the show, I became briefly panicked that the opportunity to ask this question had passed me by. I have decided to write in in the hopes of getting my question answered. As I'm sure you know, in your old intro, there were multiple voices reading out, Dear Prudence. Then a person asked, Do you think that I should contact him again? Dear Prudence, do you think that I should contact him again? Help. Help. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. That's where I need closure. Do you think that they should contact him again? And who is they? And who is him? And why are they not in contact? A 
here's my very short, disappointing answer. I remember when they were trying to come up with that uh, sort of intro, and I believe that my producer at the time, as well as some of the people just like on the team, picked a few representative subject lines and may have even simply picked ones that they felt represented common questions. Um, So I don't think they were pulled from any specific letter so much as just help, you know, you know, help. I couldn't tell you which one that came from. I don't know who he is. I don't know who they is. Um, Sometimes people wrote to me and I really thought they should contact people more often than not. The answer was no. So I'm going to go ahead and guess that this one, this particular question, this particular person, let's say that they was their former principal. And the answer was no, because Mm. they had already hashed it out and they just wanted a different answer. So that's my imaginary answer. Uh, I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry to disappoint you. I was leaning towards no, too. (laughs) If it helps, the only other piece of feedback I ever got about the intro was from somebody who said, is it possible to re-record so it's not women asking questions about contacting somebody um, because I feel like that's too gendered. And I remember Mm. thinking, oh, that seems like a good idea. And then- we never got around to re-recording the intro, but now there's no voices at all. So I've at least finally been able to make them happy. And um, I hope that life brings this latest letter writer uh, a little less disappointment from another front. <laughs> and that's it for me today. Mara, thank you so much for joining me on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It was a delight. And I wish you just, again, continued luck in finding a girl uh, in real life who also doesn't talk to her grandmother and who hates true crime podcasts. If she, if she, or, or has a wonderful grandmother and likes true podcasts, but only the one about cults, because those are the only ones that I like. (laughs) All right. I can dream. With that addendum, I send you out into the day with that blessing. Thanks again. Thanks for joining us on Big Mood, Little Mood with me, Danny Lavery. Our producer is Phil Circus, who also composed our theme music. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash mood to sign up, to subscribe, or hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you're using right now. Also, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts if you get a minute. We'd love to know what you think. If you want more Big Mood, Little Mood, you should join Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. Members get an extra episode of Big Mood, Little Mood every Friday, and you'll get to hear more advice and conversations and interview questions with our guests. And as a Slate Plus member, you'll also be supporting the show. Go to slate.com forward slash mood plus to sign up. It's just $1 for your first month. If you need some little advice or big advice and you'd like me to read your letter on the show, head to slate.com slash mood to find our big mood, little mood listener question form or find a link in the description of the platform you're using right now. Thanks for listening. And here's a preview of our Slate Plus episode coming this Friday. Like I look at this letter and I see my husband has wanted an open relationship for a long time, which fine. He cheated on me. That's painful. You two, it sounds like decided to stick together and work it out, which I think is totally legitimate. You say you've come a long way and you have a new foundation of trust. You know, letter writer, you don't really go into detail about that. But I would say if you have really come a long way, I would expect for him to have done a lot to restore trust with you. What has he done to prioritize your relationship to one another? To listen to the rest of that conversation, join Slate Plus now at slate.com forward slash mood.